Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. Hey, uh, my name's Matt Smith. Uh, I'm I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to I just want to take a minute to to welcome you. Uh, if you're here in person, or if you're if you're joining us online, uh, or you're at a different location, we just want to say welcome, and we're we're really glad that you're here today. So over the last six weeks, as as uh, as Larry and Josh mentioned, that uh, we've been going through the the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, uh, and there's there's seven letters there to churches. These letters are full of uh, they're full of encouragements. Uh, there's some indictments and there's some instructions. They're uh, they're things that that clearly apply uh, to us as God's family and individually. So last week uh, we actually heard from a, a letter from a, to a church that was uh, was growing, but they were all also uh, struggling with tolerance, you know, tolerating sin. Um, today, Jesus is speaking encouragement through this letter to a church that seems to be weak and marginalized. You know, today we're looking at uh, at chapter three, verses seven through thirteen, and and there's a there's a lot here. There's a lot there, and we're going to dive right into it. Um, so we're gonna let's let's just start out by reading that together. I'm gonna I'm gonna read through it, and uh, and you can follow along in your Bible, or you can follow along uh, on the screen behind me. So it says, "Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true." the one who has the key of David, what he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. I know all the things that you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones that I love. Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. So uh, here's some context uh, to build some context for this church at Philadelphia. So we can this is so we can better understand who they were and what this might have meant uh, meant to them. So they were they were a small small group, weak and and probably marginalized group of Christians in the city of Philadelphia, which is now uh, central Turkey. They were living in a city that was under Roman rule. So uh, they were, and they were being excluded and pushed out of the synagogue based on their faith and their allegiance to Jesus. Consequently, they had, uh, they had very little status or power within their community. They were, they were outsiders that didn't fit into the Jewish or the Roman system. Uh, at, that time, at that time in history, your identity was everything. If you were a Roman citizen, you had status, uh, you had a resource, and you probably had some influence. Uh, Judaism at that point was a recognized religion in Rome, and, and they didn't care that the Jews worshipped another god. 
people worshipped lots of gods. Uh, what Rome cared about was that they worshipped and pledged their allegiance to the emperor and recognized him as Lord. Some of the Jews wanted to maintain their status uh, and not rock the boat, so they paid tribute to Caesar. Uh, they also they didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah or as God. In fact, they were deeply offended by his claims. So when these Christians refused to worship Caesar and proclaim Jesus as God and their king, it immediately separated them as outcasts from uh, the two main cultural elements in, in their city. So when Jesus is speaking to this group of believers, he addresses them uh, as the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David, the, and, and the one that can open and close doors. In each of these letters to the churches, Jesus has revealed a part of his character to these churches. And, and the purpose of that is to encourage and instruct them. And here, he's communicating his authority and his power to save. So we're going to dive into this, and we're actually going to drill right down to the main point of this. There are so many things to talk about in this letter that we could probably spend another eight weeks just talking about this. Uh, but for today, what we're going to look at is the very, the very central point of this, the center of it. And, uh, and that, that really comes out of verse 8. So in verse 8, it says, I know all the things that you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. So Jesus is described as the one who's holy and true, the one who has the key and can open doors uh, that no one can close, and he can close doors that no one can open. Jesus is referencing Isaiah 22 when he's talking about doors, but this, is not, uh, this isn't the only time that Jesus has used language like this about doors. Uh, in John 10, he says this, in John 10, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters through the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So uh, not only does he open and close doors, Jesus is saying, I am the door. Uh, in John 14, he says it like this. He says, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, there's this amazing connection here. There's an amazing connection. All of these scriptures point to the same thing. All of them point to the same thing, that uh, uh, it's clearly uh, true that Jesus is the only way in. No one gets into the kingdom without him. So only Jesus opens the door, and it's open to everyone that comes in through him. And to those that would come in by another means, uh, it's closed. 
He, the doors he opens cannot be closed, and the doors he closes cannot be opened. So it was clear, it was really, really clear to these Philadelphian Christians uh, that they, they really understood the gospel. They got it. They understood that the only way in was through Jesus, and now Jesus is driving that point home uh, in verse 8 by saying this. He says, I know all the things that you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. There's really, there is nothing more exposing than that statement. It, it's okay, uh, actually, it's okay to personalize this. Um, what, what would it mean, uh, what would it mean to you, put yourself in their shoes for just a second, what would it mean to you if Jesus, who is God, uh, said to you, I know all the things that you do? You mean all the things? <laughs> like everything? Like even that thing that no one else knows about? Jesus says, yes, all of them. I know all the things that you do. And then he says, then he says, I have opened a door for you. You've got to realize what that's saying. What that's saying, what that means is that God knows it all, uh, the absolute worst, and yet he still opens a door for you through Jesus. He, he makes a way for you to be right with him when you're anything but right. See, every one of us is, is separated from God by our sin. Sin is the systemic problem that, that we're born with. Everybody has it. It's really it's self-leadership. It's, it's, it's more than just breaking rules or, or doing bad things. It's, it's our desire for, for control or autonomy in our life. Every human heart's got it, uh, and it's the thing that keeps us from being right with God. It actually makes us opposed to God. And the penalty or price for that, that sin is eternal destruction and separation from God. We are, uh, we're all in desperate need of saving, and we can't save ourselves. So when, when Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, what he's really saying is that he is the only one that can make us right with God. He's the only one that can save us. You know, God, God knew that we could not live a life without sin. He knew that we could not you know, be good enough. So he sent Jesus to live that life for us. He lived without sin, yet willingly took the punishment uh, for our, our sin so that we could be saved. Uh, he lived the life we should have lived and died the di death that we deserved and should have died. This, this is the gift of the gospel. You know, when we believe in him, when we choose to receive the gift that we could never earn, uh, God counts us as completely forgiven. The issue of our sin is resolved. And not only that, God views us as perfect because of Jesus. So your access to God's kingdom actually has nothing to do with your good works or your bad works. Your bad works don't disqualify you from it, and, and your good works don't earn it. It's only the work of Jesus that makes you right. So Jesus opens a door for us. Uh, it can't be closed by what we've done, and, and it can't be opened by any amount of strength or works. It's all and only Jesus. That's what these Philadelphian Christians had, had experienced. Uh, they had experienced the gospel, and they know that what they have is undeserved. They have peace with God through Jesus. So then Jesus says this. He says, he says you have little strength. Uh, but you've kept my word, and, and you've not denied me. So throughout Scripture, uh, God is choosing the, the weak instead of the strong, the last instead of the first. 
You know, God's kingdom is not at all uh, like our world. It's upside down. 1 Corinthians 1 says it like this. It says, uh, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that, <laughs> so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this is one of only two letters uh, to the churches that, that hold no indictment. God's not, there's not something that God's saying, you did, you did this wrong, I hold this against you. Uh, this, there's no indictment here, but that is not to say that these people are unindictable. Actually, quite to the contrary, these are sinful, guilty people uh, who have placed their hope in Jesus. You see, they really get the gospel. They know their hearts, and they know that they deserve destruction, yet because of Jesus' death and resurrection, they've been made holy. They've put all their faith in him, and they've kept his word by trusting in him. They've kept his word by embracing the gift of the gospel. Jesus, uh, Jesus sees the things that they're experiencing. You know, because of their allegiance to him, they were experiencing difficulty, uh, rejection, uh, exclusion. Jesus calls the Jews that pushed them out of, out of the synagogue, they call, he calls them a synagogue of Satan. Uh, liars that say they are Jews but are not. Uh, these were people. These people were claiming to be Jews, God's chosen people, based on their heritage and their good works, their ancestry, and their adherence to the law were the things that they were counting on to save them and make them right before God. So when these Christians uh, start proclaiming Jesus as their Lord and Savior and, and the reason for their righteousness, it immediately puts them at odds. Uh, both were claiming to be God's family, His chosen people, but according to Jesus, only those who come through Him belong to God. So because of this opposition uh, from the Jewish people, it might have been e easy for these Christians to question their true identity. <clears throat> And Jesus sets the record straight. He tells them in no uncertain terms that they are his and that he loves them. So what's happening to them is not unseen by God. It's uh, uh, <clears throat> because they have genuine faith in Jesus, he has made them completely secure. He's marked them as his own in Christ. Jesus is telling them that in his kingdom, they will be pillars in the temple. They will be part of it. Uh, they will never have to leave. This would have been particularly uh, meaningful to Christ followers who were expelled uh, from the synagogue by somebody claiming to be God's people. So because of Jesus, there's, there's a new covenant. There's, there's a new family of God, a new chosen people, a group that is not based on works or lineage or strength, but one that's based solely on the work of Jesus. One that excluded no one who put their faith in him. So while the, the Christians in Philadelphia are outsiders in their current circumstances, uh, Jesus is telling them that they are his real family. They are the ones he loves. They are permanent fixtures in the house of God that actually bear his name. All of this because they know that they are saved by his grace alone. 
They're not hoping in their righteousness. Uh, They're not resting on their heritage or their position of influence or power. Uh, They're weak, and they know it. Uh, That's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. The, The weak are strong, and the rich are poor. Uh, the first here are the last there. You know, Jesus was writing this letter uh, to this church to encourage them. He's, he's encouraging them to hold fast to the true message of the gospel. Uh, in fact, that's the only imperative in this whole letter. The only thing he's really telling them to do, he says, hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to the gospel. This is the main point. It's the main point of this letter, and it's also the main point of following Jesus. When we uh, turn away from self-leadership to follow Jesus, it means that we're putting uh, all of our eggs in his basket. We're putting putting our full weight on him. We're not trusting in anything else to save us. Not our works, not our accomplishments, not some other relationship, nothing else. We are clinging to the gospel to save us. So when Jesus instructs them to hold fast, he's, he's saying hold fast to the gospel. Uh, he wants them to be reminded of the truth. What Jesus is telling them through the gospel, this church in Philadelphia, he's saying, I see you and I know everything about you. All that you've ever done is laid bare in front of me, and I've opened a door for you that no one can close. I took the punishment for your sins so you could be with me. You, you actually belong to me. I love you, I will protect you, and in me you're victorious. And, oh, by the way, I'm coming back soon to make everything new, and you're going to spend eternity with me. So what he's, what he's instructing them to hang on to is the thing that informs that. He's saying, embrace the gospel. He's saying, hold fast to me. So the application of this, there at the end of the letter, it says, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. So uh, if you're hearing it, um, do you understand it? This, this is just as applicable for, today, for us today as it was for the recipients uh, in Philadelphia. In fact, Jesus is calling us to hear and understand what he is saying in the letters to all of the churches. There's, there's something critical for all of us to hear and apply as a family and personally from all of these letters. So when Jesus is speaking to these churches, he's speaking to us as well. When he tells them to hold on to what they have, um, to hold on to the gospel, that same message is for us. That's the application. Um, Jesus is calling us to accept no substitute for the real gospel. You know, substitutes are anything that we are, are putting our hope in other than Jesus. It's, it's anything that we're hoping will save us or give us worth or purpose or meaning other than Jesus. Substitutes for the gospel are everywhere. Um, They come in all shapes and sizes, and they can be incredibly deceptive. Satan's goal is to turn people away from God, to get them to accept a substitute for the gospel. And these are easy to buy into for multiple reasons. Uh, One one reason uh, they might be easy to to buy into is they appeal to our flesh, our sense of self-righteousness, Um, It's appealing to think that I have earned God's favor and I will spend eternity in heaven because I deserve to be there. And that may sound ridiculous to some of us, uh, but think of it like this. When was the last time you compared your works or your goodness to someone else? 
You know, we're quick to measure our righteousness against uh, maybe our younger prodigal brother uh, to justify ourselves. Uh, or uh, our, 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 we, we, uh, uh, we're feel, we feel deserving of more, or we look to those who, uh, who seem more righteous and then feel like, uh, like grace and mercy are too good for us, and then we feel condemned. It's easy to accept the substitute that our works are the basis for our access to God's family. We're, we're very quick to build our theology around the world rather than the character and the grace of God. After all, uh, you know, you, you, uh, you work, you get what you work for. You know, if you work hard, uh, you earn a wage. And while that may be true in the workplace, uh, the, that's the opposite of what the gospel shows us. Uh, the gospel is upside down compared to our world. In the gospel, Jesus' work pays it all, and our account gets the credit. So substitutes are, are very often, they're really, really close to the truth, and, and they might even sound like the truth, and that makes them really difficult to identify. Um, <clears throat> this was the case for the, uh, the Galatian church. You know, they were buying into a substitute that sounded like the gospel, and it, it prompted the apostle Paul to write them a letter pointing them back to the truth. You know, the substitute they were believing uh, was this, believe in Jesus, follow his commands, and you will be saved. This sounds good. And at first it might even sound right, uh, but it was so misordered that it was actually the opposite of the gospel. God does not approve of us based on our works. Paul had to remind them that salvation is only through Jesus. Believe in Jesus, put your faith in him, and you are saved, period. Now, because of this, go obey God's commands because you love him. You see the difference? Uh, obedience is how you have relationship with him. Obey him because of the gospel, because he loves you, and he has saved you. Obey him because you love him, not as an attempt to save yourself. Instead, and so instead of believe and obey and you're saved, the gospel says, believe and you are saved. Obedience is what comes from experiencing the gospel. This was the same, this was the exact same truth that Jesus is reaffirming to the Philadelphian church, those Christians. He says, You are only made right through me. Now hold fast to that truth. <clears throat> living, living any other way is actually a life driven, dominated, and motivated by fear. Always wondering if I'm if I'm good enough or if I measure up. Uh, always, always at risk of losing God's love and favor. Unsure of your, your life and your circumstances. Unsure of what eternity holds for you. Jesus is telling us to hold fast to the gospel so that we won't turn away and accept a substitute. He's telling us to hold fast to the gospel because it's the only thing that can truly save us and it's the only thing that can transform and change our hearts and our minds. You know, substitutes for the real thing become exquisitely clear when we know the real thing. You know, once you experience what is real, uh, a substitute can never satisfy you, and, and it actually starts to stand out like a sore thumb. So how do you know the real? Well, what you do is you, you actually start where Jesus does with this letter. He says, I know all that you do. And I've opened a door for you that no one can close. So em embrace the fact, embrace the understanding that God knows. Uh, 
Someone told me once that uh, one of the greatest lies, probably the greatest lie we sell ourselves, is that we can hide our thoughts or our actions from God. He knows it all. Jesus knew it all and still chose to die for us. You know, Hebrews 12 uh, even says it like this. It says, he endured the cross because of the joy set before him. You have to know that that joy that they're talk, that is talking about, that joy that was set before Christ is you. It's me. It got, Christ did it because he wanted relationship with us. So where we encounter the hardest edge to the gospel is when we have to accept a gift that we don't deserve. No one, no one can do that without a supernatural dose of humility. This, that's where you experience the real thing. When you come face to face with the reality that you are not as good as you think you are and that you can't save yourself. It's, it's at spiritual rock bottom where we find the brightest uh, light of hope. There is no greater joy than finding uh, freedom and embracing God's, uh, in embracing God's undeserved grace. You know, for the heart that holds fast to the gospel, they know that they've received a gift that they didn't deserve and one they can never lose. They've entered through a door that Jesus has opened for them and that no one can close. They know without any doubt that God loves them because he proved it so clearly. You know, for that heart, there's only freedom. You know, 1 John 4.18 says it like this. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Hold on to the gospel and remember that you're free because of it. It means enjoy God's grace. As the gospel changes us, we actually shift from defensive and worried uh, to confident and secure. Jesus says right here, he says, all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God and they will never have to leave it. The heart that holds fast to the gospel knows that they're already victorious because God has declared them so in Jesus. So the big question here is how do you, how do you hold fast to the gospel in a world that's pulling you in every other direction with substitutes everywhere? So I might, I might suggest uh, three really practical steps that we could take. Uh, the first step is... Uh, is through, is through prayer. You know, it's not through our strength that we're saved, so it can't be through our strength that we really experience the gospel. Jesus called this church, he called this church weak, and they had little strength. Uh, embrace your weakness and draw on Jesus' strength. Pray that he would show you the gospel and change you with it. Ask him to show you how all scripture, how everything in scripture points to him. Ask him to open your eyes to the gospel. You know, the next thing that we can do is actually to act on that prayer. Uh, we, can, we can actually look for the gospel. Read scripture, uh, but don't just read it, search it. I mean, search for the gospel on every page. Search for it in every verse because it's there. All of the Bible is about the gospel, and, and Jesus even points it out in this letter when he quotes Isaiah 22. You know, he shows that he was pointing, he shows how that was pointing to the gospel. 
Let's, I'm, we're going to look at that for just one, one minute here. So God is talking to a, a leader of Israel in Isaiah 22. God's talking to this leader who has bought into a substitute himself and is leading God's people in the wrong direction. And so God says this to him in, in Isaiah 22. He says, yes, I will drive you out of office, says the Lord. I will pull you down from your high position. And then I will call my servant Eliakim son of Hilkiah, to replace you. I will dress him in your royal robes and give him your title and your authority, and he will be a father to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. And here it is. I will give him the key to the house of David, the highest position in the royal court. When he opens doors, no one will be able to close them. When he closes doors, no one will be able to open them. He will bring honor to his family name, for I will drive him firmly in place like a nail on the wall. They will give him great responsibility, and he will bring honor even to the lowliest members of his family. But the Lord of heaven's armies also says, the time will come when I will pull out the nail that seems so firm. It will all come out, it will come out and fall to the ground. Everything that supports it will fall with it. I, the Lord, have spoken. So that's what God's saying in, in Isaiah 22. See, the gospel's there. This, this was spoken centuries before Jesus quotes it. it and, and through it, God was pointing to Jesus even in it. Uh, Eliakim was never meant to save the world. God did this to point forward to what he would do through Jesus. You know, he was, he was a temporary sign that pointed to Christ, who really is the better Eliakim right? The descendant of David that would solve the real problem of the world. The one who would open a door for us through himself that no one could close. This is what God does throughout scripture. He points to Jesus and the gospel. So look for Jesus as you read. Uh, I've been reading recently uh, through the Bible using a, using a very simple uh, Bible reading plan. And at the beginning, of as it starts out every, every day with uh, the, basically telling you how that chapter points to Jesus and the gospel. It's been incredibly helpful, very encouraging. If you're interested in it, find me later and I'll, I'll get you plugged in with it. But there's lots of tools to help you engage God's Word thoughtfully and experience the gospel but it's right there. It's on, it's on every page of Scripture, and it's in every verse. So the third thing that I would, I would tell you to do is uh, um, pray, study, read, act on the gospel, but do these things together. God never meant for you to follow Him alone. Holding fast to the gospel is, is something His family does together. There's no better way to grow in God's grace than doing it together. What you have to know is that the grace of God that we receive through the gospel is what changes our lives. It changes the way you think. It changes the way you feel. It changes the way that you interact with God and with other people. The gospel radically changes the way that you see the world. When Jesus talks about the people opposed to the Philadelphian Christians, he calls, them, uh, he calls them a synagogue of Satan. He's basically saying they are his enemies. They, they've bought into a substitute, and they're opposed to him. When the gospel starts to change you, it actually changes the way that you see people who are God's enemies. 
When you, when you experience God's grace, you start to realize how God views his enemies uh, because, after all, you were his enemy. There is no one else who treats their enemies like God does. He's the only one who opens a door to his kingdom for them. Then through Jesus, he saves them and makes them a part of his family. When you realize this, um, what happens is his grace actually overflows in your life. You actually want other people to know and experience the freedom and the peace and the victory that you found through Jesus. Here's what happens. Defensiveness and insecurity start to melt away, and they're, they're replaced with compassion. You know, compassion for people who might be opposed to you, uh, people who are God's enemies, people who've bought a substitute, people who are living in slavery uh, to fear and to guilt. You know, recently... Um, I've started hearing stories. I've been hearing these for a while, but I've been hearing stories about people who are being radically changed by God's grace right here at Lighthouse. I know someone who has been sharing the message of God's grace with everyone God puts in front of him. He's been so affected by the gospel that it actually seeps into every interaction that he has. From loving and talking with his brother who's an atheist and and outwardly opposed to God, to to praying with and sharing the good news about God's grace with people that God brings into his office at work. You see, the effect of the gospel in his life can't be contained. You know, he actually has to let it out. I've I've heard about people coming to church because they met uh, multiple people on separate occasions who brought up in conversation how much they love their church how much they loved their church family and how excited they were about the gospel and how God was changing their lives through it. They said they had to come see it for themselves. See, people who are holding on to the gospel, they can't hold on to it without, it, without being changed by it. This is how the gospel can change our perspective. So here's one more story. Um, Last March, our our sister in Christ and part of our family here at Lighthouse, Marcy Ball, passed away. And uh, I found out later that just weeks before she died, uh, Marcy had reached out to her small group leader and asked for help in getting some resources so that she could share uh, the good news about Jesus with a woman who was in the same care facility as her. Because of the joy Marcy had in receiving the gift of God's grace, a gift that she knew she didn't deserve, she saw other people as worse off than her because they didn't have it. Even as she was dying, she didn't want someone else to live without knowing the love of Jesus. So if, <laughs> if you're here today and you don't know him, you don't know that love, uh, you have to hear this. He loves you, he knows all the things that you do, and he's opened a door for you that no one can close. All you have to do uh, to walk through that door is ask him for forgiveness and follow him as your forgiver and leader. All you have to do is accept a gift. 
If you want to do that, if, if you want to follow him, don't wait. We're going we're gonna to take a minute uh, right now. Let's, let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Um, and, and we're going to pray and we're going to ask this question. Jesus, what are you saying to me right now? And we're just asking, we're going to spend some time and just listen. We want to pray for you. Um, we're actually going to sing one more song. And, uh, and if you want to pray, if you want to pray about anything in your life, uh, maybe, maybe today is the day you decide you want to follow Jesus. You can pray about that. You can pray about anything in your life. And we have people who are making their way there right now, but there's going to be people at the, all four corners of the room who are ready to pray with you. Um, you don't have to be a member of Lighthouse. Uh, you don't have to be embarrassed to receive prayer. Actually, everyone needs prayer. I need prayer. Bill needs prayer. We all need prayer. Um, and uh, I'm going to pray for you. And then if you need prayer, I want you just to go, go find one of these people. Uh, so let's pray. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would draw everyone who needs prayer right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.